when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord Jesus. Stately clump back bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses by James Joyce. Read today by John Freeman. Corny Kelleher closed his long daybook and glanced with his drooping eye at a pine coffin lid sentried in a corner. He pulled himself erect, went to it, and spinning it on its axle, viewed its shape and brass furnishings. Chewing his blade of hay, he laid the coffin lid by and came to the doorway. There he tilted his hat brim to give shade to his eyes and leaned against the door case, looking idly out. Father John Conmey stepped into the Dolly Mount tram on New Common Bridge. Corny Kelleher locked his large-footed boots and gazed, his hat down-tilted, chewing his blade of hay. Constable 57C on his beat stood to pass the time of day. That's a fine day, Mr. Kelleher. Aye, Corny Kelleher said. It's very close, the constable said. Corny Kelleher sped a silent jet of hay juice arching from his mouth while a generous white arm from a window in Eccles Street flung forth a coin. What's the best news? he asked. I seen that particular party last evening, the constable said with bated breath. A one-legged sailor crutched himself round McConnell's corner, skirting Rabiotti's ice cream car, and jerked himself up Eccles Street. Towards Larry O'Rourke in short sleeves, in his doorway, he growled unamiably, for England. He swung himself violently forward past Katie, and Booty Dedalus halted and growled, home and beauty. J.J. O'Molly's white cairn-worn face was told that Mr. Lambert was in the warehouse with a visitor. A stout lady stopped took a copper coin from her purse and dropped it into the cap held out to her. The sailor grumbled thanks and glanced sourly at the unheeding windows, sank his head and swung himself forward four strides. He halted and growled angrily, for England. Two barefoot urchins sucking long licorice laces halted near him, gaping at his stump with their yellow slobbered mouths. He swung himself forward in vigorous jerks, halted, lifted his head towards the window and bayed deeply. Home and beauty. The gay, sweet, chirping, whistling within went on a bar or two, ceased. The blind of the window was drawn aside. A card, unfurnished apartments, slipped from the sash and fell. A plump, bare, generous arm shone, was seen, held forth from a white, petticoated bodice and taut shift straps. A woman's hand flung forth a coin over the area railings. It fell on the path. One of the urchins ran to it, picked it up, and dropped it into the minstrel's cap, saying, There, sir. Katie and Booty Dedalus shoved in the door of the close-steaming kitchen. Did you put in the books? Booty asked. 
Maggie, at the range, rammed down a grayish mass beneath bubbling suds twice with her pot stick and wiped her brow. They wouldn't give anything on them, she said. Father Conmy walked through Colongo's fields, his thin-socked ankles tickled by stubble. Where did you try? Booty asked. McGinnis's? Booty stamped her foot and threw her satchel on the table. Bad cess to her big face, she cried. Katie went to the range and peered with squinting eyes. What's in the pot? Shirts, Maggie said. Booty cried angrily. Crikey, is there nothing for us to eat? Katie, lifting the kettle lid in a pad of her stained skirt, asked, And what's in this? A heavy fume gushed in answer. Pea soup, Maggie said. Where'd you get it? Katie asked. Sister Mary Patrick, Maggie said. The lackey rang his bell. Brang! Woody sat down at the table and said hungrily, Give us that here. Maggie poured yellow thick soup from the kettle into a bowl. Katie, sitting opposite Booty, said quietly as her fingertip lifted to her mouth, random crumbs. A good job we have that much. Where's Dilly? Gone to meet father, Maggie said. Booty, breaking big chunks of bread into the yellow soup, added, Our father, who art not in heaven. Maggie, pouring yellow soup in Katie's bowl, exclaimed, Booty, for shame! A skiff, a crumbled throwaway, Elijah is coming, rode lightly down the Liffey, under loop line bridge, shooting the rapids where water chafed around the bridge piers, sailing eastward past hulls and anchor chains between the custom house old dock and George's Key. The blonde girl in Thornton's bedded the wicker basket with rustling fiber. Blazes Boylan handed her the bottle swathe in pink tissue paper and a small jar. Put these in first, will you? he said. Yes, sir, the blonde said, and the fruit on top. That'll do, game balls, Blazes Boylan said. She bestowed fat peers neatly, head by tail, and among them ripe, shamefaced peaches. Blazes Boylan walked here and there in new tan shoes about the fruit-smelling shop, lifting fruits, young juicy crinkled and plump red tomatoes, sniffing smells. H-E-L-Y apostrophe S filed before him, tall white-hatted past Tangier lanes, plodding toward their goal. He turned suddenly from a chip of strawberries, drew a gold watch from his fob, and held it at its chain's length. Can you send them by tram, now? A dark-backed figure under a merchant's arch scanned books on the hawker's car. Certainly, sir. Is it in the city? Oh, yes, Blazes Boylan said. Ten minutes. The blonde girl handed him a docket and pencil. Will you write the address, sir? Blazes Boylan at the counter wrote and pushed the docket to her. Send it at once, will you? he said. It's for an invalid. Yes, sir, I will, sir. Blazes Boylan rattled merry money in his trousers pocket. What's the damage? he asked. The blonde girl's slim fingers reckoned the fruits. Blazes Boylan looked into the cut of her blouse. A young pullet, he took a red carnation from the tall stem glass.
This for me, he asked gallantly. The blonde girl glanced sideways at him, got up regardless, with his tie a bit crooked, blushing. Yes, sir, she said. Bending archly, she reckoned again fat pears and blushing peaches. Blazes Boylan looked in her blouse with more favor, the stalk of the red flower between his smiling teeth. May I say a word to your telephone, Missy? he asked roguishly. Ma! Abadano Artifoni said. He gazed over Stephen's shoulder at Goldsmith's knobby pole. Two carfuls of tourists passed slowly, their women sitting for, gripping frankly the hensets, pale faces. Men's arms frankly round their stunted forms. They looked from Trinity to the blind columned porch of the Bank of Ireland where pigeons were cuckooed. Ancio of Ovoto gave esti idea, Amadano Artifoni said. Quandero Gervini como le. Apois mi sono convito che il mondo e bestia e peccato perce la sua voce. Sarebbe on sispit di rendia via, invece, lea si sacrifisa, sacrificio in cronto, Stephen said, smiling, swaying his ass-plant in slow swing-song from its midpoint, lightly. Speriamo, the round mustachio faced, said pleasantly, Madia retta a mea, si refetta, by the stern stone hand of Gratan bidding halt, an inchiori tram unloaded, straggling highland soldiers of a band. Si refetero, Stephen said, glancing down the solid trouser leg. Ma, so serio, eh? Amadano Artifoni said. His heavy hand took Stephen's firmly, human eyes. They gazed curiously an instant and turned quickly towards a dalky tram. Ecolo, Amadano Artifoni said in friendly haste. Venga Trovami e si pense. Adio, caro. Arrivederla, maestro, Stephen said, raising his hat when his hand was freed. E grazie. De che? Amadano Artifoni said. Scusi, eh? Tante belle cose. Amadano Artifoni, holding up a baton of rolled music as a signal, trotted on stout trousers after the dalky tram. In vain he trotted signaling in vain among the rout of the bare-kneed gillies smuggling implements of music through Trinity Gates.